This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. Welcome to Going in Circles. It is Monday, and on this Monday, we have a very special guest. The sniper, Barry Spears, is here with us. Barry, how are you doing? Well, it's going. It's raining, but uh, it's Florida in the summer, so this happens. Absolutely, that's what it's. It's raining up here my way too, so we're in the same boat, so to speak. Well, I just hope we don't wind up in a boat if it keeps raining. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> but so, interestingly enough, July Fourth this year fell on a Saturday, which meant, un unlike the usual July Fourth fair, we had. Uh, we had some, uh, I guess, the Met Mile would be almost considered like a uh, an older horse classic race, as it's really the premier one-turn mile race in run in this country. And um, with all the schedule changes, it wound up on uh, on July 4th. Um, that was uh, kind of a... Um, the anchor to the the Belmont card, which, which was a good card, um, it certainly was uh, a lot stronger than the undercard of the Belmont Stakes Day card was. But um, but there was some some real interesting performances, um, and Vacoma Vacoma was uh, was really kind of to me a surprise, not a surprise winner of the Met Mile, but it was surprising to me that he was able to get right to the front and based upon how insanely fast the Belmont main track surface has been, the fractions weren't unreasonable at all. And, um, yeah, I, I noticed that it was, it was, it was, it was kind of surprising. Like you said, that he ended up on the lead. Um, you know, I wasn't expecting him to be kind of out there winging it. You know, I think he might be close up, but, you know, once he got to the front, the fractions ended up being a little on the slower side for, for a race like that. And, and he, he's been in great form. So I, I kind of, once, once they hit the, the, the stretch and it kind of seemed like he was going to kind of pull away, um, you know, and I didn't think he was going to get tired. So it was, it was a really impressive performance. I mean, he, he's been really, really good this year. Um, I expect when he shows up again in the forego, he, he's going to give a great effort. But, um, you know, hopefully he's not bet down like you would think and, and get some value. But, you know, the hot horse always gets bet. So, you know, I might be looking for somebody else to play that day. But, you know, but I, I definitely, it was, a, it was a really good performance. Yeah, I, I was surprised to see him on the lead. I, I knew that from the inside that, he would have to send out of there, but um, I, I really thought that Warriors Charge was was going to go to the front. Um, so, and, and when he kind of surrendered the lead, it to me changed the race and and made it really really difficult for a uh, code of honor because he wound up 
kind of floating back uh, to last and and you know he made that that one turn you know they used to call it the balcony sweep at at on uh you know at belmont in the westchester but this was a little different breed of cat he was trying to run down in this race and i i thought code of honor ran well but um and i mean the horse that um that was really the the big disappointment was McKinsey who who broke really alertly and then he was kind of wrangled back, um, which is something that uh, I bet Mike Smith wishes he could he could have over again. But he didn't show up at all, and at a mile or under, he he's always showing up. I mean, he he was I think uh, six wins and two seconds out of eight starts at that distance, and he just kind of didn't fire. Yeah. Kind of, you know, as far as the quote-unquote jockeys race went in in that particular event, it was really strange the way it, like you said, it panned out. Uh, I mean, you know, like I, I kind of figured Vacon would be up close. I, I really thought McKenzie was going to be on the lead, and then when he got wrangled back, it it opened the door. I mean, it was like a gift. Like someone just gave Vacoma the gift of the lead by himself, and and he just ran on with it. Um, it, it, and it also can be said arguably that Code of Honor probably ran the best race despite, you know, the, all the dynamics that were going against him once the, the gate opened. Um, I'm interested to see how he comes back off that, off that race. I mean, he ran extremely well, um, considering he was really up against it. Yeah, I thought, I thought he ran a good race. Um, network effect just kind of, uh, it it was like a, if it was a harness race, he would he sat in the pocket. I mean, he just sat right on the rail, never moved. Everybody else kind of went wide, and and uh, you know, or I read Ortiz did a good job keep keeping him in position to get a piece of it. And you know, if uh, if the leader had had you know stubbed his toe, he he would have been right there. He might have won it. But um, I thought Code of Honor certainly ran the best of. Uh, the, I mean, you can't take anything away from the winner, like I said. But I, I thought Code of Honor ran ran a really, really good race, and I'm I'm really wondering what what Baffert's gonna do. Um, coming out of that with McKinsey, because that was really kind of a dull dull race for him, and he always shows up. So I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, that, I don't know what kind of spot he could find for him. Um, I, I'm guessing somewhere out in Delmar, um, but. He may run into some better horses out there too, so I don't know. I mean, the, obviously he can still win, he can still run. It's just a matter of what spot they pick, and you know, I, I guess in the in the big scheme of things, I, I would trust somebody like Bob Baffert to put him in the right place and get him ready for the next race, whatever it may be. But yeah, I, I was I didn't I didn't particularly like his effort um, on Saturday and. You know, it happens from time to time. I mean, he threw a couple, or actually one like that in last year. And, you know, he had trouble finishing off races and things like that. But, you know, last year up at Saratoga, he ran excellent. So, you know, I guess it just depends on who he's running against and, and what kind of pace dynamic he's given. But I, I wouldn't say that ride he got on, on Saturday was, was going to show up on Mike Smith's highlight reel. No, it, it, it was a, it was I, I, even like when the race 
when they broke and he broke so sharp and I'm like, well, this is, these two are going to just kind of duel. And, and then he took back and he kept kind of falling back. So, so it was weird. Speaking of Mr. Baffert, he seems, uh, seems to be in a little bit of trouble with the, the results of the Arkansas race races yeah. being leaked yeah. out. And, you know, I want to say this lidocaine is not something you would give to your horse to as a PED of any sort there's it, it it's not something that um you could you would use that you wouldn't have to use in massive doses that obviously everyone knows would test so the problem i have with with him especially is that most of the positives he gets and he seems to get a lot of them is that they're not really um these really powerful uh performance enhancers that are definitely making the horses win or this or that it's just that, like every smoking gun that everyone's ever found about him has not been a smoking gun yeah but, i i noticed that same thing and in, in- I'll use the basketball analogy. It's almost like a, a ticky tack foul, you know, where you know he did something wrong, but it was just like, True. all right, it was just a little bit. The problem um, I have with him, and is that, I mean, let's face it, this is this has turned into a game of haves and have-nots. Baffert's rich; he's got a lot of money. He doesn't worry about staff and and all the other issues that a lot of other guys have. That doesn't mean that he he's not a billionaire. But they they just have to have better quality control in that barn. You can't be running all these horses in all these big races when you know there's going to be uh, n- not just testing, but a lot of times in in uh, the grade ones and they're doing super testing. And that doesn't mean that there's there's not uh, good enough testing in other races. But for the stake races, they test for. Uh, a whole variety of, of of substances. Like, for example, most most jurisdictions test for three, four, five, six, maybe eight things. And this is what people don't understand, is that you don't take the sample, put it in a machine, and it, like, pops out. Okay, it's got this, 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 and this. There's, there's thousands of drugs that could be used. I, I remember a couple years ago, someone got caught using a steroid that hadn't been used since the 60s by East Germans. And, you know, it's like, wow. <laughs> but it, it, for whatever reason, it recycled on the list to test. And But the, the stakes, the big stakes, and I know Keeneland does it. I'm not sure what other tracks do it. Um, I, I believe Naira does it as well. But they they have these, what they're called, super tests. And all the super test is, is, they test for like 500 different drugs, those samples. Sure. So it, it just wouldn't be cost effective to do it on an everyday basis for every, you know, for every 10 claimer. But, you know, for these races, you know that there's going to be more scrutiny. And like even with Tiki Tac Fouls, once you get the five, your next one means you're sitting on the bench. That's and yep, that's done. the problem with, with, with racing is that we do a poor job of explaining like that lidocaine did not make those horses run 
better. As a matter of fact, both horses, uh, well, not Nadal, but but the filly ran by far better her next race. Sure. So sure uh, it, it's not that, but, you know, I just think that he just has to do a better job. He just can't keep getting positives. There's just no, there's no way to defend them. People like me who say them do themselves. The only times I've ever, the only other lidocaine positive I ever heard of was Steve Penrod, about fifteen years ago, eighteen years ago. And the Steve Penrod would be the last guy that would give a horse anything that would be, you know, considered uh, illegal or, or performance enhancing or anything like that. Steve Penrod was a, a horseman's horseman. He was a straight shooter. One of his grooms went to the went to the store, bought some some cream for the horse. Thought he was doing the right thing, and the horse had cracked heels. Did the horse up, you know, rubbed the cream on the heels and wrapped them up, and it the the medication had lidocaine in it, and he didn't know, and that's that's what they got a positive for. And in his case, of course, it was like you know Steve Penner, I got a positive. I I can't believe it. Steve Steve Penrod, who, who was a great guy, by the way. As a matter of fact, when I, when I first started training, um, we the first time I got stalls at Churchill Downs, I was in the same barn with him, and, and he helped me a, a lot. He really was a he was a great horse, or was. I mean, he's retired now, but I remember he trained a horse called Flatter, who's turned out to be a really good sire. And I had a horse in the race, and we had claimed the horse for like fifty thousand, and. We liked him. He he was doing pretty good. He he was a pretty good horse, and I can't remember the name of the horse, but I remember standing there, thinking, you know, this horse is Penrod's coming off a layoff, and who knows what he looks like, and a blah blah blah. And then 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 Flatter walked in the paddock, and I I said to my assistant, "We got no shot, man. Look at that, that 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 might be the best looking horse I ever saw. Like he was a man among boys. Ah, man, he and he did he he." He blew our drawers off, but uh... well, you bring up a good point um, when when it comes to Baffert, and and like you said, it, you know he should be running the ship tighter than that, um, especially with these small overages or you know kind of I, I guess you know petty stuff, if you will. Um, but running an operation like that. And, and all the stakes horses, he, he definitely should be aware, I'm, I'm sure he is, that the testing is going to be a little bit ramped up for those races. And that kind of stuff, it really can't fly. I, I mean, I've heard things, you know, I'm not well versed on the rules, but that kind of stuff, um, or the lidocaine was permissible in California and not in Arkansas. And there's all kinds of things going around. But, the, you know, the ruling that came out, it looks like you know they're they're gonna go ahead and, and defend themselves against it. So um, you know it'll be interesting how this plays out going forward, and then even after it's done, um, what kind of things pan out. But I mean, as a better and, and, and seeing a lot of, lot of um, rumblings on Twitter and things like that, you know nobody has any confidence in the system. No, and that's a big problem because it, it creates that perception of of. Uh, you know, just sketchiness and, and, and all kinds of crazy stuff at, at levels that we can't even, as betters, think about because it would just give you the notion that why would I play this game when everybody's cheating? And that's kind of how it is. And, and in today's world with the extremes, and you know, there's really no nuance with, with the general public. 
So it's like one guy does it, everybody's doing it. And I, I really can't blame anybody for, for feeling like that in a way um, because it happens so often. Um, but, you know, it just it's just getting to that point where they're going to have to do something or it's just going to get worse. The thing is that you're, you, what you said was 100% accurate. The system sucks. The regulators suck. And I, I had an issue yesterday. wasn't had nothing to do with drugs. But a horse I own a piece of had to be scratched at Gulfstream from the third race because the state has convoluted rules and wildly incompetent regulators. Wildly incompetent regulators. I they Because of the COVID, the state licensing office is not really technically open. There's people in there, but they put cones up. They don't let you come in, except for an emergency circumstance of some sort. They want you to do renewals, license renewals, over the um, on the Internet. So that's what I did on Tuesday. I had, and not only did I just say, oh, I did it, I had the head of security at Palmetto's help me to fill it out because it wasn't coming up on my iPhone. The, the So we used the computer. I put my application in. I have no violations. I have no arrests. I have no, there's nothing has changed in the three years I've been licensed. Uh, I don't need fingerprints. And I paid for my license. So they have the application in their system on Tuesday. I paid for the license with the credit card. I have a receipt sent from the division so i have my license application i have a, 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 re, a email receipt that they received it and they have my money on friday they called my trainer and said that she had to come in there was issues with my license because because i had done it on the internet they weren't sure they were going to let us run and she said, well, what? The, how does that make any sense? What do you mean? Like, he, he's, he's applied. He can't, you got, your office isn't open. What should we do? So she enlisted the, the help of, uh, of someone who's worked in that office before. And, and he called the investigator. And the investigator said, well, just have her send, uh, come over, just, just have her fill out a, um, a temporary license application and, with drop it off with a check outside of our office and, and we'll open the door and grab it when she comes over. So she did that. So now I've paid for the same license twice. Saturday, everything's okay. Sunday morning, steward calls. We have to scratch the horse. So I said, well, what outside of physically driving to Tallahassee or calling Governor DeSantis... What exactly could I have done? I, I made my, my I, I did the online as I was instructed on Tuesday. I've paid for it. You've got the, the payment twice. I go, you have an investigator in your office. He could look up on the system to make sure that I wasn't a, a mass murderer wanted uh, in, in, you know, six states or, or hadn't, uh, you know, committed some, some violation that they would need to uh, have a, an investigation before they license me. I said, how is that possible that 
you aren't going to let this horse run. And then uh, then he tells me, well, well you know, it, it won't make you feel any better, but there's two other owners in the same situation. Wow. They scratched three horses yesterday. All three had, this, had done the same thing, had gone through their system and paid them. I have a receipt showing that I paid them. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I don't see how it could get any more frustrating than that because you did everything that they asked you to, plus, and it still didn't work out. And and there's no reason and, for it. And then the one guy says, "Well, if you hadn't, if your trainer had just taken you, if you hadn't um, gone online and, and put the application, because once you put the application and it's up to Tallahassee, there's nothing we can do." So I said to myself, "Chuck, don't go off." Don't go off. Don't go off. You know, so I, I calmly just said, I understand you work for a bureaucracy, but at what point does someone here say, this makes no sense? Number one, it's Sunday. So there is no one in Tallahassee. Number two, your office isn't accepting people walking in there to do that, to ask questions. So I said, you're telling us to do this online, and I did it online, and now you're telling me it's not enough. I go, Well, just the fact that he knew, and he's like, oh, this isn't going to make Everybody knew. And they knew the process, and they know it's bad, and it's like, well, how can, how can this be? You know what I mean? I did everything I could, and I'm still not able to run, and they're like, oh, yeah, we know, but... That's just how it is. Well, the one and, thing that, like, that drove me crazy was he said, well, if you hadn't put your application, I said, so if I, I hadn't done what I was supposed to do, then my trainer could have come in and she could have signed an affidavit. That what a temporary license is basically is an affidavit that the trainer signs stating that the owner within 30 days will file his application and you have to give them a check, of course. So I said, so you're telling me my trainer's signature stating, a, a third-party signature stating that I will f fill an application out within 30 days supersedes my actual application that I put in on Tuesday into your stupid system and paid for already. I go, how is this possible? But this is this is why it's frustrating. And, and it's also, it's frustrating when people say, oh, we need a commissioner, because it's never going to freaking happen. And no, if it no. does, it's going to be just like this on a national level. Right, because it could be even worse. Who are they going to get? Uh, you know, right. I, I keep thinking person, about... You know, they'll get the heat. Like, oh, well, that guy's compromised. and You know, it, it, nobody's ever going to be happy. And, and it's just, it's disappointing because I think it's it's gone too far to go that route. And it's, you know, past the point of where the help is needed or something needs to be done it's just people just really you know have to have the desire to change the, the rules in the system to make it work for everybody but to do something like that you'd have to get you know i personally if, if i was in charge of something like that i'd get everybody's input i'd get trainers i'd get jockeys i'd get everybody i could and get everybody's input and then try to put something together but again it's all about desire. Do they really want to change it? I mean, that has to be kind of thought out in the equation here. I don't think the people who yeah. work for the state care, and right. that, that's and not every not everybody. Really care. And, and that's like whatever. And I'm not, I don't want to I want to throw everyone under the bus. The people who work in the office, they they feel like 
I mean, they're on the front lines. You know, they're, they're seeing the disgruntled people. And I know there's a lot of times wish there's things they could do, but they also don't want to get fired. And right. when you work for state offices, when you work for the government, you're working mostly for weasels. People <laughs> wind up in government jobs, and they're weasels. And this is what they do, and they, they have some political gain. They want to move up the ladder. And they're people who are often are people that the the political connected didn't feel like, hey, you know, uh, Bill, we don't want him running the family business because he's a retard. Let's get him a job with the division of uh, business. You know, we'll, we'll call up our senator and get him a job working in government. And that, and that's who winds up working in these jobs. But, I've always wondered how, you know, how those kinds of people that work in those sort of jobs are evaluated as employees. Like, how how... How are they evaluated on a, on a yearly basis on, on how good of a job are they doing? They're not. They're not. Eva- they're all. Right. They're all and union workers, assumption. and and the yeah. government has. I mean, if you work for the government, e- even if you're a teacher in some in, in, in a lot of these places, you've got to do something so egregious to get fired that it, it it's you know it's almost it's impossible. <laughs> and I don't know how we got off into me railing on the government, but. When you work, when you go to, you know, and one thing about racing is wherever you go, you're dealing with a different commission and different rules. And and most of them aren't that different. And like I said, the people who sit there in the office and take your application, those people want to do a good job. And and they, they, you know, they get to know who you are. And and those aren't the problem. The problem is the people in the capitals that... That uh, are using these as stepping stone jobs, or they just don't care. They get to, they do their forty hours and and they won't they won't you know if it, they won't work forty hours and thirty seconds because you know, that's 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 the way the that's that's the culture and and that that's one of the big problems we have in racing is that we're that's that part of it is is kind of forced on us, but. Like I said, I don't see how a national organization wouldn't just be the same except the people be further away and it would be torturous. And, you know, I get sick of hearing people talking about a czar or this or that because, number one, it can't happen. Number two, if it did happen, they would certainly put the wrong type of people in. Because right. you, you look at the you look at our, our, our the racing quote unquote leaders now, so many of them are so out of touch. It's the same people they hire the same people. It, it, it's 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 a you know it, it, it's it's frustrating because we we were in a conversation on Facebook or I guess you call it a conversation when you're writing on Facebook, but the other day and and um, someone wrote something about growing the game and I said do they really want to grow the game Churchill Downs for years pretended like they wanted to have uh, a casino at Arlington Park they supposedly had lobbyists working on it and then when the state of Illinois gave them everything they didn't just give them slots they gave them everything Everything. they gave them they said you want table games fine sports betting fine this i mean everything 
And then they were like, eh, well, we kind of bought into this one down the street, so we don't want it anymore. That, you know, it makes you think to yourself, do they really want to grow horse racing? I mean, and, and their defense is always, well, you know, we're, we're a publicly traded company and we have to, um, we have to, uh, shareholder, you know, shareholder, not nonsense, which is all nonsense yeah. because, yeah, <laughs> because, you know, you could certainly argue, well, if horse racing was a stronger business and you helped horse racing, you helped build it up, then the signature event that you have that brings in the most revenue for your company could get even bigger. But it's an excuse. It's used by, by them because they just, they don't care. They use us as leverage. They bought Prescott Downs. You think they care about Prescott Downs? No one cares. No one cares about Prescott Downs except for about seven jockeys and four trainers and Doug Salvador. They're the only people in America that care about Prescott Downs. Churchill bought it because they want to get in on the Pennsylvania game, the, the sports yeah, betting. On the slots, yeah. And, uh, well, and the, the sports the, betting. That's what they right. that, That's what they wanted. Casino. They needed a hook, right. They have a casino there, too. There is correct? a casino. That's right. Though I would think in Erie, Pennsylvania, it's probably not, uh, you know, like the Bellagio or anything. But, but their their goal there is is not horse racing. It's what's attached to the horse racing. Horse racing is just an, an inconvenience for them, right. as shown as at Hoosier Park. People forget if Ron Geary hadn't bought Ellis Park from Churchill Downs, because Churchill Downs owned Ellis Park when I was first in, in Kentucky. If he hadn't stepped up to buy it, Ellis Park would be gone. Like Hollywood Park, I've heard that a lot. Hollywood I've Park is gone. No, Hoosier, which is now feelings. Hoosier, which is a harness track now, strictly that that was owned by Churchill. That would be gone. And I'm not just railing on Churchill because, you know, they're the still the landowners of the most illustrious fall meet that we have, the Gulfstream Park West. Mm. <sighs> a tent city, my favorite place. You know, Gulfstream Park West meet. If Keeneland is like a mansion, Gulfstream Park West is like Fred Sanford's house. <laughs> I was gonna say the trailer. <laughs> no, it's. A, <laughs> but yeah, but that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know how the junkyard, the Fred Sanford house, got stuff all over. That's Calder, you know, like. Yeah, that's that is true. Uh, I mean, you know, the, I I enjoy Calder just because it's. It's kind of raw, but you don't have to you know, go there. Anybody, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and anybody that goes there would be like, "This is it," you know, like. Calder is is have the place. it's the <laughs> single hardest place I've ever been to to watch a race. At this point, the way it is now, because there's no grandstand, there's no way to get high on the. Uh, well, there's a way to probably get high, but not that kind of high. <laughs> but you know, there's 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 no the apron is is. Is pretty much it's flat, flat. It's almost flat, and yeah. the races on TV there are shown on on a delay, so it's the announcer's um, call isn't on a delay, but the races on on video are on a delay, and it's the most confounding thing when you're you're hearing they're off and and you're watching the video screen and they're not off. They're still in the gate for about seven or eight seconds, and then I, I think there's something in your brain between your your eyes and your ears when they they're not you know matched up it just really messes with you 
I got to where I, I would go in the in the the little the little track kitchen they had, which is way off, where you can't even see the track and, and watch the race on TV from there, just on because TV, it, it yeah, was too distracting to watch. The last time I went there, I did the same thing because I was confused and I was like, "Wait a minute, what's going on here?" So I went up right by the the uh, kitchen there and I saw it and I was like, "Wow, this is much better." That that it, it got it's uh, it's it's a testament to Churchill's horse racing. Um, their 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 vigor for horse racing and that was ah well they bought turfway and they're rebuilding it and this and that well that's great but yeah it's it's when the 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 business people take over and they're really short sighted with stuff like that uh, you know they want the money now 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 and the bigger picture kind of falls by the wayside and, and they just lose sight of it because they want to grow everything up front and not on the back end and that's that's when things get in the to a bit of trouble and then you have these situations where they're trying to buy casinos and not trying to develop racing and it's it's unfortunate because it really could be good and they could be you know like the center of, of, of that kind of growth and activity but it's it's actually working the opposite and, and the sad thing is that they're a very successful company and True. they their stock prices which which all of course the executives who make the calls are, are all large stock owners that their, their stock prices have gone nothing but up and uh so i mean yeah it's easy for us to criticize them but they would probably trot out a, a, a powerpoint presentation of all the money they make and all the great things they've done and you know right, and everybody's we, like oh that's good then right right and, that, and right. in the end they would probably they would probably say well you know if you don't like it buy your own track <laughs> <laughs> so sounds about right so my 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 Powerball forays lately have not even been. I, I haven't even been getting one number. <laughs> Seriously, if you I buy like twenty dollars, if you, you buy twenty dollars, four hundred and twenty million, I'll I'll grab a couple of dollar quick picks. You're you're one, you're one of those guys. You you know yep. the, if it was like ninety ninety million, just as yeah, that's no big deal. Nah, I want the big one. <laughs> there should be a rule though. If you buy twenty dollars worth of of, of uh, Powerball tickets, and you don't get any numbers on ten tickets. I did that the last time I bought it, and I said, Give me this, bucks. "This has got to be the the odds have got to be longer than than that than getting two numbers in the Powerball, right? Getting zero numbers." You know what's funny? I always say that about like pick fours and pick fives. If you don't hit a horse, you should get something. That's hard to do, in my opinion. <laughs> that's, that's hard to do. You know, it's funny. The metal end still has. In their early pick five, they still have a consolation, <laughs> and it's been driving me crazy because I keep hitting four out of five, and I, I looked the other day and I count and and I got back a buck seventy. It's a consolation, <laughs> and I don't even know why they have the consolation anymore because it's a, it's like a twenty it's a twenty cent it's a twenty cent wager, but it's and like. It's like uh, Get $1.70 I, I got a dollar seventy back. You can't even get a soda. I I, I know. It was like I, I was almost embarrassed, and I I got like four something on my other. Oh, I was like, man, I put like ninety dollars in the pick five and get back four bucks. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of which, that, that's kind of how things were at Belmont. 
over the weekend. Oh. I mean, the, the chalk parade was in full effect, man. The chalk I fest. mean, it was unbelievable. I, I think I saw a pick five that paid $17.60. I mean, what what kind of nonsense is that? Didn't they have the pick, the pick one of the pick threes paid like like two sixty for a dollar pick three to pay three bucks. Three bucks. Like, what's going on here? And you know what's crazy is you know there's there's a lot of rumblings that this kind of thing is is going to kind of permeate into the Saratoga meet, um, just from some stuff I've been hearing from people, uh, trainers, uh, and, and and other industry people that you know Saratoga might not be the summer place to be like it usually is. Yeah, Saratoga's is, they're going to struggle mightily to fill five days a week there. And I know I've gotten a few calls this week from people looking for help. Dave Spears called me today and said on his off days, he's going to work as a hot walker. Which they probably should do a documentary on this, but... This is this is he's working for some for, for a six pack. Oh no, he ain't, he wouldn't work for a six pack. <laughs> Maybe a six pack of horse, but the, the they're desperate for help there. They're just absolutely desperate, and I think that's going to be a big issue, uh, a factor that has never been a factor like this before, and that you have to find people that are not only um, qualified can be licensed. And are uh, COVID negative, right. and are That's willing to willing to do the job, and and a lot of people uh, just aren't aren't willing to do those jobs. They're hard jobs, and you know, it's like I understand Naira's in a very tough situation, and I'm really not critical of the move to Saratoga. I I thought it might probably be better to not go to Saratoga, but um. I understand why they did it. I, I guess that I don't necessarily agree, but I don't have all the numbers in front of me, and I'm, I don't. I'm not hearing what, um, you know, what they're hearing from from the their board and, and and such. So, it is what it is. But I really think that five days of racing, New York has a major major problem, and a lot of times in racing. One of the most frustrating things from my standpoint is I've done this my whole life pretty much. I've grown up in this, and I had no family that wasn't uh, was in racing, but I've been going and working at the track since I was 15 years old. And when people don't acknowledge that if, uh, if we get a few bad breaks, and a lot of these things have to do with the rest of the world too, but... Sure. We're not we're able to function right now because sadly enough we don't need fans at most tracks because we already don't have very many. But Saratoga that's a track that Steve Zorn did a really good piece on about a month ago and he broke the numbers down and Saratoga does about 20% of their handle on track which is an enormous number compared to most everywhere else, which is doing uh, in the single digits on track most of the time. Right, it's ADW money. So you're... Now, you know, a lot of that 20% will be shifted to other, you know, to ADWs 
and Naira Betts, at the very least, for New York customers, I know, pays off. Um, the, the horsemen get the same cut as they would if the bet was made on track via Naira right Betts. Right, yeah, I've heard that. But not all of that handle is going to go through Naira Betts, and they're going to lose some of that. And with Keeneland being run this week, bizarrely, <laughs> um, and then Churchill you know, opening up in September... And Ellis having decent enough purses. And Indiana, a lot of these Kentucky guys, they'll ship up for the stakes. You certainly can't pass up those races. But uh, I think a lot of the the kind of filler horses, I don't think they're going to bring them there. And I think that you're going to have a tough time with the help. And just sending a handful of horses is a whole lot easier than sending a whole barn full of horses. Especially if your owners aren't able to attend the races and you don't have to be there yourself right. to... It's just a perfect storm of bad things yeah. that are adding up. And, you know, I, I was thinking to myself when I was looking at the condition book, I was like, these, these races are going to have a tough time filling. And I think there may be a lot of short fields. Well, this um, one, like we, you said, we, it's just nobody's going to show up. New York has a big problem, not just this year. They have a structural problem on their backside in that the haves have gotten so strong, the have-nots, in a lot of ways, have gone away. Like, people like me. Like, I'm a guy that had a, a, a good racing barn. I, we had racehorses. We didn't have horses we were trying to make stallions or horses we were trying to make broodmares. I mean, sure, we'd like to. But for the most part, my horses had to run and earn their keep. And those kind of guys, guys like me, guys with 20, 30 horses. Phasing out. They're phased out. Right. We can't compete. So they have the guys with the New York breads that run 17 buyers. And they, they fill the last race of the day or the, the maiden 25 New York bread. And, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the small outfits. Maybe guys do it themselves or, or, you know, have one helper for six horses. But everyone else, and part of that is is not just uh, New York Naira's fault. It, it's the New York State um, Labor Board, which is hyper um, aggressive yeah, with, with try, right. trying to using basically using racing as a as a source of funding in the, uh, our business model, our our work model doesn't doesn't fit the normal work model because of the hours that we need to work in the structure of racing it just is and it's racing's fault because we should have been lobbying to be considered agricultural workers 50 years ago 40 years ago 30 years ago when when things weren't so divisive politically and we didn't because you know racing never does anything proactive it's always reactive or in some cases it just keeps ignoring it but it's tough to do business in a state like that where you're having to pay your your grooms overtime and and we're talking not just overtime massive amounts of overtime in a lot of ways for them to do nothing when they're sitting there with their horse literally doing nothing but someone has to be with the horse and if they're with the horse they're on the clock and if they're on the clock so you get guys that if they run two or three horses a week they, they might have a 90 hour week and they might live at the end of the barn <laughs> you know and it's not like saying well 
you know, you need to pay your workers. People are paying the workers, except you can't. It'd be the equivalent of asking people that work at Wendy's. You say you're going to make the guy who, who runs the drive through at Wendy's, you're going to give him $1,900 a week? How long do you think Wendy's is until they're charging 15 bucks for singles? You know, yeah, they're, they're going to be out of, out of business in a, in a month. And that's the, that's the problem. And, and one of the things that's made it worse is that, yes, the big outfits still can afford to pay those things because they're charging so much more. And it just puts a nail in the coffin of all the medium-sized guys because they can't raise their rates as high as the, the big guys do. So it leaves you nowhere to cut corners except with the horses. And most trainers, unlike the prevailing attitude is that, oh, they're just guys that don't care about the horses, blah, blah, blah. Most trainers care. And they don't want to cut corners of their horses. And when they, what they do is, is they leave. They leave or they you know, go to a different jurisdiction or they get out. A lot of guys have, yeah. have just stopped training. And uh, Karen McLaughlin comes to mind. <laughs> exactly. I showed Billy Badger, they, um, you know, Billy runs Gulfstream now. I showed him a um, an old program I found when I was moving from 1999 where it shows both him and I in the top, I think, 14 or 15 in the standing of Saratoga. And, and he laughed and he said, you know, it's funny, you can show people that and, and now you ask them about 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 yourself and people say oh that guy he was no good <laughs> he can't train any horses you know and and a lot of times it's just that they don't they, they get so focused on the same guys winning all the horses and it's not that they're not good trainers but if you have the horses that they have you can't you can be you can't you can't help but win you, you're good right and then and then you have the the constant promotion the tvg say oh this guy's the greatest guy ever blah 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 blah, blah. woody stevens won five belmonts with a 40 horse barn five in a row Man. these guys have 40 horse barns at tracks that the, 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 they they forgot they even have <laughs> and it's not their fault it's not the trainer's fault it's the it's the system that allows these guys to have an ungodly amount of power because it's not just they have horses but they have all the owners and a lot of these owners sit on these boards and they have they have power and it's it's great for them and it's terrible for everyone else yeah i mean you know it it just seems like uh it's heading in the direction where you you'll see you know three trainers with three horses a piece in one race and and it's just that's that's not a good product for the fans or betters um and and it like you said, it squeezes the little guys out, and 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 there's lack of competition there, and that's that's just getting to an area where, you know, having having that happen is just so detrimental to the whole bigger picture of the game, and 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 again, back to what you were saying before, growing the game. Do you really want to grow it? That's not the way to do it. And you know, with the stall space, you know, those guys have basically unlimited stall space. And, and that's not fair to everyone else, especially the ones that are fighting for the scraps at the bottom. 
I mean, it, it just, it, it's just disheartening when I think about it. You know, I try not to. The sad thing is, Barry, it's in your face. you know what's funny is stall space is almost not even an issue of most tracks anymore because they're not full. Last year at Saratoga, there was 200 empty stalls. Last year, 200. Wow. That's a lot of stalls for a track like that. that Monmouth yes. has empty stalls. You know, Gulfstream fills up in the wintertime because, you know, they have a monopoly on the sun. But guys come here to winter. They don't come here to run, per se. And they come right. here to, to get through the winter, and they run some horses, the, some of the young horses, the two-year-olds turning three, and, you know, get the their their seasons kicked off with a lot of good horses. But Yeah, but I've noticed that there's a lot of horses that you'll see, you know, come in the spring, but been wintering all at, at, at Gulfstream and didn't run a race. Yeah, a lot of times um, they don't. And you that's, see a lot of workouts, but no race. And, and it's like, how many of these horses they got down there like that? Well, you know, the other thing is that purses have gotten high enough with the added, you know, slot income that you don't need to run a horse year-round anymore. Even the, the lesser horses, um, New York breads especially, if you have a New York Red Turf horse, well, you have no need to come and bring them down down south and, and run them if you have those conditions. You don't want to blow those conditions for a smaller purse. So that that's that's one of the issues that it, it's a great thing that purses are hired because we're struggling to keep owners, to get owners in the game and to keep them in the game. And without purse, with, without that uh, pot of gold to kind of lure people in um, you know the love of the game goes so far but if you can't make enough money where even when you win races you're not you know you're still losing money then even when you win you lose yeah so but but by the same token the higher purses also when you have a good horse lead you to not need to run as much because you're earning a lot more when you do run well so it's kind of a double-edged sword and and I think looking back 50 years from now, I think look, when they look back, they're going to say the biggest mistake that horse racing made, and horse racing in the last 20 years has made pretty much everything they've done has been wrong. It's hard to believe, but when you really go back and look at it, the way we've done so many things is wrong. But I think the biggest mistake they're going to say is that when they merged with casinos which is essentially what we've done they didn't use their their share of the slot revenue in a manner to grow the game they just threw it at purses and i know a track like parks is very much guilty of that and i, I was there for a couple years and i, I moved there from kentucky and one of the reasons I did was because of the purses. And at the time, I owned a piece of a lot of the horses I trained. And the, the purse structure and the fact that there was so many available outlets to run. When, when you're in that mid-Atlantic area between Parks and Penn National, Delaware Park and Laurel and Pimlico and even Charlestown, um, Presque Isle, which is a million miles away, even though it's in the same state. It was still within a shipping distance. Monmouth. New York, um, 
they had that Suffolk meet where they, you know, there, there were just so many different spots. And Atlantic City was still was still opening. They still had that uh, the spring meet at Atlantic City. But um, when I got there and and I realized that essentially Parks is just a jip meet with mostly jip horses that run for extraordinary money. That that's that and nothing else was done there to grow the business to grow the game. And I said, why are you guys running five claimers for $27,000? Why can't they run for $21,000 and take the other money and use it? Uh, put it somewhere else. Put, put it somewhere else. You know, why is takeout so high? 94% of the money for uh, was coming from sources other than handle. So wh why why wouldn't you want to cut the the... the the um, the takeout to the lowest possible number to try to grow it. You have a year-round circuit in a major metropolitan area. You're 90 minutes from New York. You're you're 60 minutes from Washington. You're right there on the I-95 corridor. There's I don't know what 40 million people within a an hour drive or something from a place like Parks, and and you're not trying to grow this business. And at some point, they're going to come and they're going to take the money. And maybe it won't happen for a decade, which it hasn't. But they've come and they have taken some and they want to take more. And the governor of Pennsylvania is an outright enemy of racing. He is an outright enemy of racing. And they're, he's not alone. And they look at that money and they say to themselves... Who knows? Who gives a shit about Parks or Penn National or Prescott Downs? Who? They don't have people that need to get Derby tickets. Like if you live in the state of Kentucky, everybody connected wants to get Derby tickets, and at least the Kentucky Derby, Churchill Downs, Keeneland people go there. They 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 have that experience of at least going to the track. And when you don't, and, and I'm listen, I'm a big believer in that people that don't bet or don't own horses or making an investment in the game, that we shouldn't really um, put so much of an emphasis on getting those people to the races. But we need to get some people to the races, and you need to make right, it where somebody, it, it's not, <laughs> it's not like a shithole, and and you go there and. Um, the food isn't disgracefully bad, and and you know you, you you can't bring a girl there because you know they're they're gonna be leered at by these you know creepos. So that you know you have to at least meet that standard. And when you don't, you know you, you can only use the jobs and the farm space and that stuff. That argument only goes so far. But if you hold events. And you, you have a following, and you build a crowd. If there's, if you can get a crowd out there a couple times a month, a couple times a season, outside of just Pennsylvania Derby Day, then maybe you got a better shot of, of being, um, uh, when the raids come, maybe you have a better shot of being able to show people pictures of big crowds and fans and people um, enjoying themselves at, at a at a state location that's provide that is providing jobs and is providing a lot of tax revenue. Well, my thing is, is I don't understand, and, and I've always 
had a hard time wrapping my head around this is something that to me and you seems so obvious it's like they just don't want to get it I mean I don't know if it's just willfully just like whatever we're making money now and that's what we're going to do or if they're not seeing what we see Listen, in the state of Pennsylvania I'm not convinced that the racetracks themselves aren't going behind the scenes to the politicians and saying take the first money take the first money let's get rid of racing you get rid of racing we can we can sell that land to you for something and uh you know we'll we'll, we'll do we'll we'll make more money you know these racing yeah, like people they Hollywood Park turning into condos or a mall or something yeah exactly they happen to Rockham Park it's it's like a Well, you know, like if you look at, at racing, and and we're not old enough to be to remember the heyday of, of like racing in New England, but racing in New England is basically extinct. No, it's definitely extinct. When when you look no at uh, when you when you look and and you you think about um, Suffolk Downs and Rockingham Park was a viable circuit for a long time, and and there's been a lot of really good trainers that came out of that that. Uh, on that that circuit in that area, um, and you know, you, you go back to the, when I was a kid. The, they used to run the fair meets in Massachusetts, and I'm, I'm we're we're certainly not old enough to remember Narragansett, but in Rhode Island, they used to have a track down there, and and um, well, we read about it in books. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But uh, I remember there was a couple old guys who used to work for Jerkins. They were from New England. They used to talk about it, but. They were quite a bit older than me. That was 20 years ago, so they're they're all unfortunately passed on. But uh, but that's a whole you know populated area of the country where racing, live racing, really more or less doesn't exist anymore. And you look at Chicago. Chicago is the third largest metropolitan area in the country, and we might soon be down to Hawthorne. And Only. I'll give Hawthorne, I'll listen, I'll give them people a lot of credit. Uh, Jim Miller's a great guy, and, and he's done a lot, you know, they, they work their ass off trying to, to make the product there better. And I make fun of Hawthorne a lot, but I ran a horse in the Hawthorne Gold Cup. <laughs> a horse named Cadianus. And um, this was like hmm, 2002, I think. And um, I think Touch Gold was the the fit no no um the other horse oh man i can't think of his name anyways i was in new york and i shipped these two horses out and um i, I shipped a, a rabbit el balazano was my rabbit for cadianus because cadianus had no speed and um golden missile that was the horse to beat in the race golden uh, missile. I, 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 yeah i remember that race so um we shipped out a couple days before. I had never been to Hawthorne before. I'd been to Arlington, but I had never been to Hawthorne. And uh, I got to Hawthorne, <laughs> and uh, Cicero is not exactly Arlington Heights. So <laughs> I got there, and I found my way to the stable gate, and I, I got to the stable gate, and I rolled the window down, and I said to the, the guard, where's the steaks barn? <laughs> And he started laughing. 
<laughs> he started laughing. Stinks, Barn. <laughs> and the other guy in there, you know, said, no, no, it's in Barn, you know, GF, you know, G on the other side of H or something like that. So I was like, all right, where's that? Well, go down there on the left, you'll see it. So I had sent the, I had sent the horses with, with the guy, uh, guy named Tuba, Jamaican friend of mine. It's not his real name, but that, that, that's what we called him. Tuba is, is, is actually famous in New York circles. Well, Tuba, Tuba's a tough guy too. You know, he he wasn't, uh, he he was no, uh, you know, he he wasn't the guy that was going to be intimidated by much. So I finally find, you know, I work my way down the barn at Barnard Hawthorne, and it's exactly like you'd think it is. Like it looks like Vietnam, so <laughs> like under siege. So. Uh, I find the barn, and they had stenciled, painted, spray painted. Um, hold on a second. We have to take a break because uh, we're running out of time. But let me come back in one second. Sure. All right, we're back, and we're back to the uh, the the never-ending Hawthorne story. So th they had stenciled, spray painted stakes on the barn, and all it said was stakes. Didn't say barn. Didn't say anything else. So I go in the barn, and it looked like a barn out of like. It looked like a, you know, like you see those uh, those buildings that used to be factories that have kind of they're like abandoned. It was kind of like that. And my two horses were in there, and there was a horse like ten. It was a really wide shed row, and a horse like ten stalls down to the right. As you're walking into Mar facing it, there's a horse in there who looked like he he had. African horse sickness or something. I mean, he looked like a horse that was like gonna die. And I'm thinking, man, they put two horses in the Hawthorne Gold Cup in this race. So I, I, I see my guy Tuba. I said, Tuba, and, he, and he's got this look. And I was like, you know, I love you, but I can't stay here. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you gotta get me a hotel. There's no way I can stay here. I was like, where do they want to put you? And I guess the rooms are up. You have to go upstairs, outside, upstairs, and uh, we walked up, and I looked at the room, and it was like, <laughs> like a raccoon wouldn't live in there. It was just a mess. So I said, "No, no, no, you can't stay here. We'll get you. We'll we'll find you a hotel somewhere around here." So the stall guy comes in, and he was a nice guy, and he's like, "You know, uh, I'm sorry about the." this and that whatever so uh he said the only thing i could tell you though is, is you gotta lock your stuff up because we had a, a big tack trunk there and he says you better you better get a padlock for that tack trunk I, I wouldn't trust you know i wouldn't trust the guys <laughs> if you, you guys got nice stuff so so i said all right no problem so i said where where could i get a lock around here and he said, oh, there's a hardware store down the road and so I go out the stable gate, I take a left, I take a right, and uh, there's a huge waste management like place where they where they um, store the like trucks. No, where they, st oh. I don't know, maybe they had it, but I, I saw like a million waste management trucks. So I finally find a place, like a little bodega place. So I go in there, right? And I'm the only white guy I can see. It's all, it's either Mexican guys or black guys. And I'm the only white guy I've seen for like three blocks. So I'm like, I need a I need a stupid lock. So I get out of the truck, and uh, 
I walk in there and and I go to the front desk and I say to the guy, uh, you know, the checkout place, I say, "You guys got locks here?" And the guy starts yelling, "Man, I ain't got no Glocks. We don't sell guns here." <laughs> he thought I wanted a Glock. He, he, so no, I said, "No, no, no, man. Like a master lock, like a padlock." He goes, "Oh man, I thought you were undercover trying to get us in trouble." You know, I was like. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, what have I done here? Man, Hawthorne is like a freaky place. So <laughs> I got the lock, and no, the they didn't uh, steal anything. And we found Tuba, a, a hotel that was acceptable enough. And and then look, <laughs> we were in the paddock, and they have this indoor paddock. And my one horse, El Balzano, he was really bad in the paddock. And he was the rabbit, you know? So there's nothing worse than the rabbit being like, a pain in the ass in the paddock. I'm thinking, you know, he's going to kick one of these grade one horses and, you know, they're all going to hate me forever. So there was a, um, like a little, you had to go up this little ramp at the end of the paddock and, and that's where they kept the ponies. And it was low. It was a really low ceiling. So I said, uh, we had, we had hired another guy to run him. I said, just go in there and, and, um, you know, just, just kind of circle around and let me saddle the other horse and just get him out of the way. I just don't want him doing anything to, you know, to, to cause any of the other horses harm. So I run back down, I'm putting the saddle on Catianus and, and all of a sudden I hear this crash, bang, 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 you know, scream like, oh man. So <laughs> he had, um, he had reared up and he, he they had like a, a false ceiling. He had like knocked it over and and I couldn't tell if he had a cut on his head or what because he wouldn't put his head straight. So I was like, just put the blinkers on and take him to the track now with the pony, you know? So I think Donnie Mesh rode him, and I was like, Donnie, just go to the front. And he's like, why? Well, I said, just go to the front. You know, so he goes out on the track, and we get the other horse out. And and uh, I think, you know who? Uh, man, Glenn Hild won the race, like a 40-to-1 shot. And the track, I remember, it was really... It was very, um, it was not even cuppy. It was beyond cuppy. It was like sand almost. It was just like a beach. And Glenn Hild had some Arkansas bred, homebred that he owned and trained. And I think it was $500,000 race. And he was like 40 to 1. And uh, he he, uh, he won that race. And then I don't think Cadianus ever ran again. I think that, I, I believe that was, I think that was his last race. Yeah. He, he kind of had a bad knee. Rich Schatzberg had, had claimed him off of Chris Clement for 50000 and done well with him. And um, I got him after Rich had sent him back to Ramsey's farm. And they were, they were going to retire him. And it was the summertime. And I was out there one day looking at some other horses. And he was running around the paddock. And I said, who's that horse? That, that's a good-looking horse. You know who's he? And they told me, and I was like, "What? Well, you know, what's the matter with him?" And he said, "Oh, well, you know, he's he's, you know, knee or this or that." And I said, "Well, he looks pretty good." And Mr. Ramsey sent him back in, and we did okay with him. We we finished second in the race called the Saratoga Cup, which was an old old race. It used to be a really important race in Saratoga, I guess, in like the 30s and 40s, and they revived it for a little while. Yeah, and, I think I remember that. Yeah, a yeah, couple of years. Yeah, they they kind of brought it back else. for a couple of years, but then it, it when they moved to Woodward to um to Saratoga from Belmont, then it, it it really didn't need to be 
be there anymore. And, and James Bond beat me with a horse, and my memory is so bad now. But I finished second in the race, and Bond's horse, uh, unfortunately, um, pulled up bad, like right past the wire. And that that was that was my chance to uh, to win a stake with that horse, but it never did happen. We did run second in that race, but. Um, he turned out to be a, a really good stallion, a really good regional stallion. And I never understood why Mr. MG brought, took him out of New York and brought him to Kentucky when he was really doing great in New York. But um, he, he, was a, he was a tough horse. He was a tough horse. But, uh, yeah, Hawthorne. Hawthorne was kind of like the aqueduct of Chicago. But, yeah, I mean, anybody that's been to Arlington would say that, you know, Arlington Park is beautiful. It's just, you know, and then going to Hawthorne, and I, I've, I've never been to Hawthorne myself. I've only seen it in pictures and on TV, and it, and it definitely gives that aqueduct vibe to it. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's an old school track, and got the hardcore, the hardcore players there, but it's just... Um, you know, it's frustrating because one of the things that I truly believe is that the idea that we can operate an eight-track country, um, we can just have a, a small circuit of, you know, small tracks and or small, you know, small number of tracks, and I don't know if the game's viable that way because I don't see how you can attract people to horse racing if they don't get exposed to live horse racing. And I think that it's it's a tough game to learn without being taught and social media can kind of help in some ways i mean i'll be honest i'm i'm certainly far from the world's best horse racing handicapper but there's guys on twitter who who have i've talked to had private conversations with and 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 other you know public on on twitter itself that that are really sharp guys that you can pick stuff up from but I think it's complicated enough where if you don't have that social experience of, of going to the track with someone who kind of knows what's going on, I think it's hard for somebody to come in, come in, um, right, just hold. off the street off themselves and say, hey, you know, I was reading about this online, I want to try it, without any anybody with experience with them, and, and I, I, I think you're right there, because it, it's definitely highly nuanced. And, you know, it's easy for somebody who's very new to get lost. Um, that being said, I mean, look at how things are now, especially during the, you know, I'm going to dub this the COVID era, where, you know, in, in real world scenarios, everybody's on Zoom, everything's remote, nothing is, is in person, or at least for the, the short time, or however long this COVID thing keeps going um it's definitely something that you you know i've thought about as far as racing's future is you know the live product is, is what draws people in initially and then they branch out and get into the adw stuff once they're you know kind of more novice into the game but not beginners um it's it's really going to be interesting to see if a if the the tracks evolve or the industry evolves in a way that that can accommodate a little bit of both um so far i haven't seen much of it um obviously now with 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 no fans at most tracks and you know the 
the the latest thing is what happened with Lone Star and them canceling the you know the rest of that card and saying they're they're basically closed down indefinitely. Um, it's going to be interesting. I mean, if it wakes up anybody, uh, any racetrack executives to to kind of try to marry those two concepts, you know, especially once people are going to be start coming back into the fold. Um, you know, it's just one of those things that I've thought about, and I'd be curious to see what's going to happen going forward, let's say, you know, like a year from now, like even exactly to year to date, uh, to see where we're at. Yeah, you know, I go on Twitter, and every day, O'Crunk does the handle numbers. And honestly, his take and his numbers are seem to be the by far the most accurate of anyone, including industry sources. And one of the things that's been pretty crystal clear over the last few months is the extreme importance of field size. How total handle has kind of uh, hit a glass ceiling. Right. Depending on how many, doesn't depend on no how many tracks are open, but the days where the field size is, is bigger, the handle is better 90% of the time. And, I mean, it's something that everybody knew before, but one of the reasons in the initial stages of, of the, the breakout and the quarantine started happening was a lot of guys were stuck where they were. So, yeah, field size was bigger because guys weren't, uh, they were gonna they, they, right. They, they were prepping to go back to New York or prepping to go to um, Keeneland. Uh, they couldn't go because they were stuck where they were at. And all of a sudden, when it was, you know, it got real murky as to what was going to be open, they started running horses. And all of a sudden, field size was was really good, and it made it a little tough on the down in, in South Florida for sure on the year round guys because generally. The big guys stop running most of their good horses in March. A lot of them still might have some horses here in April, but they don't run a whole lot because the good ones have already moved on to the better circuits with the better purses. And the guys who are year-round here, you know, they, they like when those guys leave because we run pretty much for the same purse, except the race is a lot easier. Well, this year, these guys stayed. They stayed through May. So it got, it, it was a little tough. I, I talked to one trainer in particular and he was complaining. He's like, I want to get rid of these guys, man. I can't win a race. I keep coming fourth. <laughs> if these guys weren't here, uh, I'd be running first or second. But uh, it's, I think that we have to be cognizant of the fact that we're operating in kind of a vacuum right now in that there's very very little to bet on there's very little sports wagering wise um there's very you know casinos are open and kind of open and it, it hasn't really got back to where it, it normally has been and that's just a recent occurrence but you know we're, we're operating without um a lot of competition and yes yeah, some places are opening back up and probably going to wind up closing back up. But even entertainment options, I mean, you're at a point a few months ago where nothing was open. 
nothing. And we were up and running. And one of the things that that the jockey club had um, paid McKinsey for for the study, one of the things McKinsey came out with was, and, and most of the stuff McKinsey came out with is stuff that like they could have got for free from you know people on on people on social media could 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 have told them what we what you know the same thing without having to spend all the money, but. That television and televising races is gonna bring more handle because it's it's easier it's easier it's easier to number one it's 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 better to watch on TV than on your phone it just is better and number two is that the exposure people can flip through the channels and 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 go and and, and search for it and find it but um that's not you know we're just doing what we were doing last year I, I, total and yes there's fewer tracks running but it doesn't seem to affect the total handle that much how many tracks are running it, it seems like there's a glass ceiling that we're not breaking through and I just wonder if we're really attracting much new money or if this isn't the same money and, and I'm sure we are to some extent because I mean the COVID issue uh people have been laid off from their jobs businesses have been closed i mean certainly there's people that are hurting economically um probably more than it's you know known because yeah. uh that's not the story that uh that's not a popular story to cover but so certainly we've lost some handle from regulars that have struggled and we've gained but then picked up some from picked up that... some but how much have we really picked up and and how much of the people we lost, how many of them are we going to get back? And get back, right? Yeah, and that, and that's always you know kind of been in the back of my head while all this was going on, um, you know. And then I see places like you know overseas, like Japan and Hong Kong, and how they do business. And you know, it, it, it's it's funny because I'm I'm always saying that you know by the time my daughter turns twenty, there might only be a handful of big major tracks and, and that's it and and you know not that i would want that to happen but it it seems like that kind of model to bring those field sizes up you know you know you see australia there's 16 17 horses you know that's unheard of here um and it just kind of puts that notion in the back of my head is how long can they sustain this kind of uh, this kind of business model without you know kind of evolving or changing in some way in order to make it better but it's like you said in the past you know uh, it's just they're just content at the top with what's going on and it doesn't seem like they want to improve it and it's just it's the status quo is what they're going to go with because they're making enough money to sustain whatever it is they're doing but in reality it's not going anywhere it's it's stagnating, like you said. We hit the ceiling as far as the the uh, the handle numbers, um, but there's potential to be more. But it's just you know got to be creative in the ways to find it. You know, 25 years ago, those the, there was more tracks running. We ran a lot more races, but the big two. Um, circuits in terms of, of total handle were New York and California 
And California right now is in shambles. And I don't think it can be saved. I, I don't think it can be saved. I think that California is going to continue to slide. And it's not just one uh, group to blame. It's just you, you're fighting uh, everyone there. Everything. You're fighting each other. The tracks are fighting the... The, the um the animal rights people and the politicians and the media and it's just so difficult to do business in the state of California to start with and it's expensive and when you look at their purses uh, they're just not very good and they're not gonna get any relief from um, gaming it doesn't look like that's gonna happen and I just can't see how they're going to turn this around and and, and get a, a, a thriving um, industry. You know, in order to have a thriving racing industry, you have to have, first, you have to have horses. Horses come first. Because without that, you can't attract betters. The betters come second because without the horses, without the um, the programs being... Um, you know, the, without the product, you, you don't have customers. The, the product, you have to have a customer before you, uh, the, the product before you have a customer. And a lot of customers have left California because the the races just are, you know, they're not, they're, they're almost B-circuit-like the, these days. Yes, they, there's some really good horses that still run out there, and but every stake is a short field. And I just don't see how they can they can attract enough horsemen with all the issues of racing that we know and and when you go there you find just how expensive it is to train there and with all the bad publicity it, it's going to make attracting California based owners more difficult and I just you, you just look and you see to, you say to yourself, how, if I was in charge, how would I fix it? And I really have no idea. Yeah, that's a tough one, especially out west. I mean, like you said, there's so many hands in it and so much opposition to what, what's going on. You know, the media is attracted to every breakdown they have. It's just it's just not a good recipe. <laughs> well, not only that, you know, what's you, going you... On and, and it seems like there's no way to fix it because it's gone too far. And, and, and you get into this situation where it's just going to stay the same. You know, I, I know myself personally, I, I've cut down wagering on, on California tracks because of field size. It's just not conducive to the, my style and, and, and making money. Not that there's not money to be made, but I'd rather give my, myself a chance in a, in a place whose average field size is 8 to 10 rather than 4 to 6. No, I, I absolutely, and I think that when you, you when you look back at the glory years out there, you, you also have to remember that Hollywood Park is no longer in play, and and Bay Meadows is no longer in play. That the San Francisco, the Bay Area, is down to one track uh, outside of the the fairs, and even in Southern California, you know the uh, Los Al is. I mean, I give Mr. Allard a lot of props for stepping up and putting the money in and, and, uh, and really 
being a friend of the horseman because ha had he not, I, I don't know what they would have done. And, and you know, he's, he's not a young man, and he's been pretty blunt in his assessment of what's going to happen there after he passes, that they're not, that family is not going to keep that track, and it's probably going to be something else. And, um, you know, 10 years from now, you might be looking at a Southern California um, with Del Mar and Santa Anita only. And can you run 12 months a year at those two tracks? I, I don't know. I don't know that you can. And and um, I don't know how to fix it. I mean, yeah, if you gave me $2 billion and we could build another track and do this and do that. But, but that it's not... Um, that's not feasible. And, and New York is like we talked about in the beginning of the podcast is there's a lot of issues in New York and the, the labor board issue is not going away. It's New York is a very expensive place to train horses. Workman's comp has the expense has been mitigated, uh, somewhat by, by the work of the, um, the NYTHA board who, who, who really done a good job at least getting that cost um under control but it's still not cheap and it's still expensive to do business there and there's there's just not that um you know the rise of kentucky and the the purses accounts uh used to be new york used to have better purses i mean i guess i'll put it that way and and now they don't and you can operate in Kentucky without having to deal with the New York State Department of Labor with your workman's comp rates at a much lower lower rate um, your feed bill you is going to be cheaper so basically all of your expenses your living expenses are going to be a lot cheaper so if you're running for more money in Kentucky and all your expenses are cheaper. Well, seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, it, it becomes if you're not um, see the one the one advantage New York has for a super trainer is Saratoga. Right. In that, in the off-season Saratoga training allows you to have an ungodly amount of horses. Where in Kentucky, that's a lot more difficult. Because Churchill Downs isn't giving anybody a hundred stalls on the ground. It's not going to happen. And um, Keeneland clears clears the place out because they sell, you know, a billion dollars worth of horses. Uh, so it's a lot more difficult to have a huge stable operating in Kentucky. So um, that is the one thing that the the big big outfits are are going to you know stick with New York, but it's everybody else. And I mean. I gave this analogy one time when I was trying to explain the, the, the problem with super trainers putting everyone else out of business. In the Yankees and the Red Sox, it's a great rivalry, and those games always have a lot of interest. But if they play each other 50 times a year, well, that interest is going to, you know, you're going to lose interest in it. If um, if a team's get have 75-man rosters and, uh, you know, your favorite player is an all-star for another team, but when he plays on the Yankees, he's the third-string third baseman because they have two other guys who are better. Well, that's what you have now with these barns. And 
you're you know you're just not gonna it just becomes uninteresting and, and that's kind of what's happening and like you said people get skeptical when they see six horse races one guy's got three one guy's got two and then there's some you know some other guy's got a 20 to one shot and is just not um it's just not that interesting and it's not that interesting to bet on and you know the old saying about uh you know the weakest link is the one that has to be has to be uh, built up I think I just made up that cliche, but <laughs> the lowest common denominator. We're not helping the middle class guys. We're not helping them. We're, we're making it worse for them. And I don't know that people in racetrack management, I know that there's some guys in racetrack management that get it, but they're working for people. They're not dictators. They can't just right, do what they want. Right, they're not autonomous where they can just do whatever. Right. And, and, that, and that's the problem, you know, is they're held accountable but from somebody else and there's so much red tape that, you know, if there was someone in those kind of positions with an idea, it'd be hard to get it through. And it has to do a lot of sales uh, within, in order to get some some support around it and and it just became becomes more of a hassle than it's worth and and i can understand that point of view um from somebody you know who, who's kind of in that position it's like well do i go ahead and and, and do all this stuff or do i kind of just let them have it the way they have it even though i know um you know my idea or ideas could actually benefit so it, it's definitely a hard kind of thing and, and people don't really talk about it that much they're, they're very quick to criticize um but not fully understand the situation and what what some of these executives have to contend with no it's something like what jeff Gorell does at the meadowlands he can do that because he owns the place he calls the shots <laughs> he's the boss and he can say well i don't want this guy racing on my track because he's of questionable integrity and that's the one thing that is really kind of, um, well, the one thing, it's another thing that's kind of baffled me in that we shouldn't need FBI um, surveillance to be able to tell who's doing things that probably aren't okay. And I said something to Bob Colina at Monmouth six seven years ago and i said you know uh navarro just won another race it was like a four horse race and it was like a 10 claimer and everybody's scratching and i said bob you know my owners when they get in races with the guy they want to scratch they, they feel like they can't win he just takes dirty claimers and runs them for 10 and you can't claim them and you can't beat them, and why are you guys letting one guy kind of, you know, run your track for you? And he said, well, what do you want me to do? You know, he hasn't had any positive tests or this or that. I said, I don't know, but I'll tell you one thing. He comes in here every year with 40 stalls, and he winds up with 75, and it's not like he's taking horses from other places to bring them here. He just claims off other people and just rearranging the deck chairs. I go, maybe, maybe you could start with that. And... I think one of the biggest fallacies that there is is that if you took 
big trainers and you you broke them up or you didn't give them as many stalls or you just got rid of them totally that it would hurt your field size and that that's like opposite of the sentiment that exists on the backside because if you get rid of them your field size will go up because people will will be more interested in running at your track when you have a few dominant players people don't want to run there because they don't think they can win right it's the competition and the it's sporting simple. track that goes up um you know i i remember i i remarked about this on twitter a couple of times on how bad uh it was at mama i mean literally you know navarro won four out of nine races i think that day none of them paid over five dollars and it was like that for a good couple of weeks i mean it was just it was horrible and i was like how could anybody want to play that track as a better you know and and I mean, I couldn't have been the only person no. that saw that going on. I mean, I'm, I'm not that sharp, you know, at all by any means. I would get but, in races with them, and my owners would want to scratch. They were like, I don't want to waste a race. We can't win. Let's just, you know, go scratch and run them at Delaware. Right, run and another one. What are you going to do? I mean, that that's that's part of the that's part of the thing. I mean, I mean, let me. I'll I'll say it. If you if Chad Brown and Todd Pletcher were you know, left the earth or were teleported somewhere else and, and they just, you know, we don't we, we can't find them. Horse racing would be better off because those horses would get divided up at least at least a while until they all went to another super trainer. To somebody else, yeah. And and it, like I said, it's not their fault. Who what are they supposed to do? Got a, a billionaire calls say up no. and says I'm gonna take right. twenty horses? Of yeah, course. Can't but, say no. but the thing is like if Chad Brown left New York, racing would get better. It wouldn't get worse. Yeah, uh, it, it's just it's just it's just simplistic thinking, but it's just math in in some ways. And well, I mean, if you, if you looked at you know Mama's this past weekend, I mean the race was very competitive. It was it was definitely different than it had been the last few summers. So you know that that's just basically proving your point. Like you know you take one of those kinds of things out of the equation, and the product lifts up. And and it, it's it's not by accident. Every track has got a guy that has too many stalls. Every single track. Chicago gives too many stalls to Larry Ravelli. Uh, Gulfstream is now they're giving too many stalls to Safi Joseph. There. This is what happens though. And and I have nothing personal against these guys. These guys I, I talk to them. I have nothing against them at all. But they don't. They shouldn't have a hundred stalls. It's not good for your product. And that's the problem. That's the problem, is that it's too easy to cave in and to keep giving the popular guy more and more and more and more. Look at college football. College football is the greatest example of how taking away things from the big boys helps everybody. Because you remember in the 80s, Tom Osborne in Nebraska... Every year they were, you know, the, the good teams were always good. And listen, it's, it's not like there's a million teams that can win the NCAA championship in football every year. There's not. But those teams had 90, 100, 110 guys on scholarship. They had first teams, second teams, third teams, fourth teams, fifth teams, sixth teams, seventh teams. They'd, you know, they, they had their, their sixth string quarterback 
would would be a, a starter in most places, but all American somewhere. But you know they were great recruiters, and they'd get these guys to go, and then they you know the the, the best games sometimes were were in practice. Well, the NCA cut that scholarship limit way way back, and when it did, it allowed other programs, the smaller programs, to get better, and college football exploded in popularity because it wasn't like. Um, Nebraska wasn't beating out-of-conference teams 76-3 to anymore. The out-of-conference teams got better. And you all of a sudden, you had a Boise State that is competitive. You, you get um, Central Florida. They're competitive with these guys, with these teams, because the big, uh, the big teams, the traditional teams, Notre Dame's and, and um, uh, Alabama's, who you know who are all who always are, are good, but you you can't get a hundred scholarship players. So thirty or forty of those guys are going somewhere else. And yeah, some of the guys still walk on, and 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 yeah, they still want to go to the big schools. And yes, Alabama and Oklahoma and the traditional schools at the end of the year are still going to be in the playoff. And that that's actually probably more popular. Teams like people like to see the big the big names, but college football was a lot stronger, got better ratings, got you know there's so much more money involved now because the the beat level teams suddenly could compete and it wasn't they weren't just a joke anymore and racing could could learn a lot from that in that you've made so many um you know so many uh trainers who who could be competitive? They're just not competitive anymore. And yeah, that, that, I mean that's a good analogy because you know it, it affected the competitive balance, and and that's what's missing right now um, when it comes to you know super trainers and and you know there's there's no competitive balance. There's you know three four guys and then everybody else. Um, but that, that's a really good point. Yeah, and it, it'll it'll. It'll be lost on anybody that could actually do something about it because they just, I don't know. I don't know that they really want to. But anyways, we've uh, we've gone over our allotment <laughs> once already. So unless uh, someone's driving cross-country and listening to this, we're at about an hour and 40 minutes. You've listened to us ramble on, and we do thank you for, for listening to to the podcast and I really thank Barry for his time and uh, Barry's a good guy he's a friend of mine and um, he's got a great opinion I wish I was wish I was nearly as good a handicapper as he is but uh, (laughs) yeah I was about to say the same thing about you so there's that (laughs) hey my big hit of the the week was the the consolation pick five at the Meadowlands the other day when I got a dollar seventy nine back (laughs) <laughs> well, at least you got that. I didn't get anything. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for for being on, and um, I'll help. I'll have you on next Monday if you can make it. Absolutely. We can make it. All a right, we have a little bit of a Saratoga preview, and uh, we'll let Breezy on the show. All right. That's a bet. That's good. Thank we you need, so much for having we, me. We need young people. Yeah. Oh, she's she's ready for it. She she asks me all the time when we go on the derby horse. She calls it <laughs> when we go on the derby horse again. 
So we're, we're going to plan on getting down there after this COVID stuff. Sounds good. All right, Barry. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Appreciate All right. it. Thank you. You got it. Bye. I was Barry Spears, the sniper, and um, like I said, we've rambled on here for about an hour and 40 minutes. Tomorrow, of course, very few people are going to be listening to this on Monday since it's already late, but tomorrow on Tuesday is our Going in Circles live show from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Um, tomorrow's... A topic is, we actually have two topics, but our first topic is diversity in racing. And I know that um, it's a topic that's been covered quite a bit, but I have some different ideas about diversity and why racing should be trying to be more diverse. And honestly, I have my doubts that it will. But that's a topic for tomorrow. So thank you again to Barry Spears for giving us so much of your time. And thank you for listening uh, to Going in Circles. If you have any feedback at all, negative or positive, believe me, I can take the bad. Give me a uh, an email. Send me an email at goingincirclespodcast at gmail. Or you can reach us uh, if you click on Twitter. You can get me at Cannon Shell. Or you can send uh, a line to the Going in Circles podcast on Twitter. Or you can also... Always get us on our page on Facebook, Going in Circles Podcast. Thanks, and we will see you. Well, we won't see you, but hopefully you'll tune in for, for Tuesdays. Thanks very much.